Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. G'day and a very warm welcome to Yowie Central. You're on 94.9 Main FM and you're with Sarah Bignall. This is the community radio show where we bring you the latest on Yowie research in Australia and we explore the vast, sometimes murky and always fascinating realm of the hairy man, Yowie, Bigfoot, Sasquatch and cryptozoology from here and around the world. We go into all sorts of weird and scary stuff here on Yowie Central, ghostly paranormal experiences, UFO encounters, and other cryptids. So get in touch with me via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group if you have a story to share. You might already know this, but if you don't, I've been an investigator for the last year or so with Dean Harrison's Australian Yowie Research. He's the foremost expert on the subject in the world, and I've been contributing to his groundbreaking and meticulous research and comprehensive database on Yowie sightings. It's literally a library for anyone and everyone in the world to access if they're interested in the Australian hairy man. All of our reports are documented for posterity and for research purposes, unlike most other Yowie research organisations. It goes like this. When people contact us to report a sighting, I get back to them and I arrange a phone chat and then I interview the eyewitness in order to document everything I can about what that person saw, experienced, heard and felt. I have to make sure I cover everything, every single little detail that they can remember. Dean then makes some of the interviews we do into YouTube videos and illustrates them with maps and CGI illustrations to help people picture what the eyewitness says happened. 
and the CGI illustrations are done either by Dean or by Buck Buckingham. If Dean doesn't end up making a video of a particular interview, the transcript of the interview is recorded in our database anyway because that's the modus operandi of Australian Yowie research to document what people are experiencing out there. All available evidence is important. AYR's records are included in the National Library, genuine resource material for everyone. And it's also an informal support service because the majority of people who've seen these creatures right in front of them are deeply traumatised. Since the beginning of the year, eyewitnesses have been literally pouring in with their reports to AYR, both historical reports and recent sightings. Uh, we've had a recent sighting in Victoria at Bundalong up on the Ovens River and I interviewed those eyewitnesses, uh, one of whom is a retired police officer, a trained observer. I'll play you the final edit of that interview in a later show. As this is a community radio show, it means that you're all part of the, the Yowie Central and the main FM community. You're all welcome to contact me if you've seen a Yowie or you've heard one or smelt one or you've had other freaky experiences in the bush with orbs, min-min lights, UFOs, panthers, whatever. In the meantime, you can catch most of the Yowie Central episodes on Mixcloud and the latest ones are on Spotify. They're there for you to enjoy whenever it blows your hair back. My guest today is none other than Attila Kaldi, independent filmmaker, investigative journalist, director, producer, cinematographer and creator of the excellent documentary Track, The Search for Australia's Bigfoot. He's also been involved in paranormal, ghost hunting and he's an absolutely fascinating man. Check it out. Attila Kaldi, welcome to Yowie Central. Hi, Sarah. It's so great to have you on the show. Now, I've been dying to talk to you because you're an interesting man. You've you've made <laughs> a fantastic documentary called Track, The Search for Australia's Bigfoot. Can you tell our, the Yowie Central listeners a little bit about what that documentary is about and, and how it came to be? Yeah, Sarah, look, I've, um, I've naturally had a fascination with with cryptozoology and with you know the 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 whole idea of of an ancient relic hominid living in Australia and obviously you know our First Nation people out there know this all too well. There's definitely obviously roots to it through my own experience. Um, you know, starting out when I was you know still involved in the whole UFO research field, and I guess. Probably the most prominent encounter that really rattled my cage a little bit was back around, I think it was around 2006, uh, we were on an expedition up in the Blue Mountains and we were fairly a fair way in from common walking tracks and we were camped out there for a little while and one night we were sort of perched on the edge of the cliff overlooking the Baragrang Valley. It was a really good so quite a pristine spot there. It gives you a panoramic view of the Baragrang and the Valley and the Mountains and everything. So uh, we, we kept an eye on the sky because 
ultimately, you know, over the years, there have been a lot of reports of UFOs and UFO encounters. And essentially, we were looking for trace evidence where potentially anything could have landed or interacted with the environment to leave trace evidence. And that was basically the the, the main um, motivation that got us out there to do these expeditions. So one of the leads were, and we assumed obviously at the same time too, was that that a lot of this stuff was originating from isolated regions of the Blue Mountains, and the reason why we sort of ventured out there. So I think it was the second or third night it was probably this was in September, so it was quite. So it usually gets pretty cool during night. We were on the edge of a cliff. Now there was no overhang because we we're at the highest point there, and we we're on this overhang, looking down to the Baragrang, and this massive rock gets thrown at one of the crew members that was sitting behind me. Now it actually landed right next to her, and obviously we all said, "What the hell's this? Where did it come from?" We went out and looked around. There were another two crew members who were further back and they were in their tent at the time and they said that they heard some strange noises. Some, it wasn't howling or anything like that. It was more of a banshee-type scream. I mean, you know you know what foxes sound like and possums and so forth, but they said this was sort of something really, really strange. So the following day I took a small crew, uh, some of the other two, I think two of the crew members actually stayed at that particular outcrop just sort of observing, you know, the panorama while I took the rest of the crew down into the area where we believe that this rock was thrown and if there were any tracks or anything that would have suggested that there's something out there other than, you know, uh, us. So what you have to understand is is that the, the two crew members were – was sitting on top of this this uh, outcrop, and it, it was about a thir- about a twenty or thirty meter vertical drop. So as we're going down, we get a radio, a distress radio call coming from these guys saying, "Looking at something through a rock from the cliff, from underneath us." And it, whatever it was, had to have you know some some serious um, you know strength to be able to throw a rock like that up twenty or thirty meters directly up and into where the guys were sitting. So we went back and we decided that we're going to leave that night. But we were debating it up until the point where it almost got dark. So by the time we packed up and had our backpacks on, it was already dark. So here we are marching through, you know, the, the rainforest here. Um, the, the trail was, was, was pretty dense. You really had to be careful where you were stepping because you could have easily deviated off the trail. It was more of a goat trail rather than anything else. And lo and behold, we heard something going parallel with us. But this thing moved like a bulldozer through the through the trees. And there was more than one. It, you can tell that there was more than one movement. And all of a sudden, whatever it was started hitting the trees with great force with a piece of wood. Now, look, Sarah, I don't think I've ever been that scared in my life, to be honest, because hearing that and hearing whatever this monstrosity was that was moving through the forest, I mean, at the time, we really didn't know what we were facing, uh, what we were faced with. And we were trying to get out of there as quick as possible. And I honestly thought that, especially one of the team members, had a, an anxiety attack and we had to stop. And I thought that was it. We're not going to make it out of this alive. And whatever is out there is that's it. We're done. You know, I already had already, already sort of started to – you know, accept the fact that this was it. This is a one-way ticket for You're us. Right. <laughs> um, and 
So these things got pretty violent and they were massive. Like, I, I kid you not, they're like bulldozers. I've never in my life uh, prior to that have experienced anything like that. So eventually we did make it out. Um, but it was, uh, you know, the, the hour and a half, two-hour hike that it took us to get out of there felt like 12 hours. It just it, it almost like, you know, time stopped. We couldn't get out of there quick enough. And by the time we actually got up, up the trail onto the area, onto the onto the fire trail, these things had already started moving back uh, into the into the depth of the forest. Mm. So that that basically sort of uh, sparked my interest. And later on, I decided to actually shoot a um, uh, a, a very short documentary on the Bigfoot and on our encounters in the Blue Mountains and and places like Penrose State Forest, the Pilligas and and the likes. And that's on Paranormal Channel, I mean, that was done quite a long time ago now. I I guess my interest kind of developed over time. I mean, I I was doing other content. I was doing ghost hunting, uh, did um, uh, Paranormal Investigators Uncut, which basically is more of a journalistic view on, you know, on the paranormal community, on on basically the community that deals with supernatural stuff, you know, whether it's ghost hunting, you know, hunting for UFOs, uh, esoteric stuff, mediumship, spirituality, all that kind of stuff. I travelled overseas, done some documentaries there too. But then, uh, we, a good friend of mine up in Queensland, and myself, well, we decided, I think it was 2017, 2018, that it's time to do one, a Yowie documentary, a proper one. And we couldn't find the right angle, couldn't find the right story to start with. And he decided to do his own. He decided to you know, finish off his own or start his, his his own project, and that's when I kind of bumped into Yowie Dan and I had a meeting with him and he was basically the catalyst for this, the, the documentary. Well, this is a really good place to start, so we'll just follow on from there. And that's how it all began. Um, so it was quite a long process, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but we got there. Yeah, and, I, and I've, I've heard good things about the documentary. Have, have you had many reviews uh, over in the States? Because you distribute it through an, Amer- an American distributor, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Gravitas Ventures. Yeah, being a, an independent filmmaker, it's 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 tough on its own. But you know, I mean, I've been sort of in the film uh, as an independent filmmaker for about fifteen, about fifteen or almost twenty years now. And you look finding distributors for this type of content, and and I've went through the rigors here in Australia um, when I was pitching ideas for uh, Paranormal Investigators a challenge. I actually went through Beyond Productions uh, back in 2009 and we almost got there, but unfortunately the department uh, that was actually dealing with it was then, uh, I guess, redistributed, if you like, mm. and the actual um, the concept itself or the, the, the project itself got shelved. So I decided to – I said, stuff it, I'm just going to do it on my own. <laughs> but, um but but that's when I kind of said, look, you know, I, I can't really rely because Australia is is a limited audience and looking at it holistically as a filmmaker, um, you want to get as much impact as possible. And even back then, uh, even though we had one of the major Foxtel networks on board with it, it still wasn't enough because when we had, I think it was Screen New South Wales or Screen Australia involved, their analysis showed that, you know, looking at Australian population, you know, between 20 and 25 million people, look at the demographics and how many people are actually interested in that type of content, 
and and it's very, very tight. Even though it seems like there's a lot of people out there in Australia that's interested in here, but collectively from the audience, it's only still, it's regarded as a niche market in Australia. So trying to market something like this or trying to find the right distributor in Australia is very difficult back then it was. America, on the other hand, has always embraced Australian independent filmmakers and they've always supported us. And uh, and that was the reason why Gravitas had, had a really good reputation. I've, I've had uh, a, distributor, a few previous distributors in the States before, but we decided we'd go with Gravitas because they had a really good reputation and they have taken on other Australian projects too. So, But the, the audience in America obviously is, is massive because ultimately you've got a, what, a population of 350 million people, but the American cultures as such is that they embrace a lot of this kind of stuff. And Bigfoot, for example, it's it's kind of part of their culture. <laughs> It yeah, really particularly, is. particularly in the northwest of the country, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like so many different uh, names that they use, apart from the native names, like you know, the Florida skunk ape, for example. They use no, no, the uh, boogers in and the booger, yeah. Of, yeah, I mean, all these weird names. So you know, there's a lot of people out there that are interested in this kind of stuff. So it kind of made sense to actually follow the same path what we did back, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and we've have had a pretty good response from the States. We've had a, a few like online magazines and, and film magazine as well that I've been interviewed with, and I've put some of their quotes on, on the Paranormal Investigators page uh, site under track. And through a lot of these online magazines, we got nothing more, nothing but positive reviews, which is really, really good. With with normal reviews, I mean, you know, it's like you know, put a video up on YouTube. You know, I mean, doesn't matter how good you think it is. You know, there's always going to be someone you're going to piss someone off. So, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> but, but all in all, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with the reviews, even through the public and through the viewers. I've had a lot of a ton of response through social media and through through uh, emails people sort of saying, you know, giving us praise and, and encouraging us and all that. And that's the reason why I started shooting the second one. Um, so, no, we've, we've, I feel that we've had a lot of good feedback and I've, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy with what we achieved. Oh, how wonderful. And how do you go about – so when you look for a, a publisher – oh, sorry, a, distri- a distribution company – do they, do they finance – or are you financing – self-financing everything – uh, beforehand, so you don't, you're not, you haven't got anyone supporting you with. No, no, and that's that's the other that's the thing is is with being an independent filmmaker, it's very very difficult because everything comes out of your own pocket. Yeah. So what we find is that the the small sort of amounts of money that that we make through you know through distribution and all that kind of stuff, all that money gets injected into updating equipment, repairing stuff, and putting it into the next project. And most of the times you find that it's not enough money. So a lot of people go to crowdfunding and crowdfunding is is a good source to to subsidise a project. Um, sometimes you find yourself just dipping into your own pocket because at the end of the day, if I was doing this for a business, just making documentary films on my own, I wouldn't be making a lot of money, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I can relate to that with Australian Yowie yeah. research as well. There's no money Look, in Yowie research. <laughs> no, no. I mean, look, I mean, at the end, they do make some money out of it, um, but that is very quickly consumed by updating equipment and everything else because, let's face it, technology changes all the time. 
Um, you know, there's new equipment coming out. You know, there's people are now going from obviously from HD to to UHD and 4K. So that means that you know, with the next one, we're filming it in in UHD. So you know, I have to update my computer for that. So it's it, it it's a snowball effect. So and and let me tell you, it's it's a very very expensive business to run because like a new computer could be anywhere between five to ten thousand um, dollars, and that's just you know, if you're buying new camera gear, I mean, you're looking at it at in ex- well around a ten thousand dollar mark. But let's also meant not not to say that you know you need to buy additional accessories with that. Like for example, speed boosters if you're going on a different sort of uh, different type of camera to to if you want to use Canon lenses. Um, or if you want that depth of field, if you want to buy new lenses because you dropped one, you cracked it, you can try to claim it on the insurance, but, you know, it's going to cost you more money to to pay out the, the bond or whatever it is that you pay for the insurance. So, you know, all this kind of stuff all adds up. And, of course, fuel, travel expenses, cars, I mean, it just keeps going. <laughs> so, look, I'd love to have a crew behind me, put it this way, um, and, and do this on a full-time basis. But, you know, lucky we didn't because I, I – almost made the change about 18 months ago to a year ago but then COVID came and I just heard a lot of the guys you know um, struggling in the media industry so you'll find that many many producers out there have a job uh, a full-time job that pays the bills and the mortgage and everything else Mm -hmm. and then they'll either take you know six months off or they'll take two months off or whatever it is or go on weekends or whatnot to actually you know, go out and film documentary films and stuff like that because we all need to live. You're listening to Attila Cowley on Yowie Central on 94.9 Main FM. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's the synopsis for... The second track. I mean, the, the, the uh, yeah. It, now the, the second one's called "Tracking the Law." Uh, the search for Australia's Bigfoot continues. The tracking the law is is kind of the reason why I've used it is because this one is going to be different from the first one, where the first one was primarily an introduction to the Australian Bigfoot and you know the people who are out there looking for answers and so forth and and. You know, we've, we've met a whole bunch of really nice people. We've we've included some stories in there and recreations and the like. 
not of not of recreations of you know of Bigfoot scaring people, but people who we who we couldn't get face to camera, but we got their stories, and you know basically we hired actors to go face to camera and tell the story. So basically, an introduction to to Bigfoot. I wouldn't even say the culture of Bigfoot. We're kind of looking at a possible hunting ground. We're looking for signs and everything else. Where the second one, tracking the law, even though it says the search Australia's Bigfoot continues, which how it actually starts, it has a very strong Indigenous element to it. And I was actually approached, a lot of people who sent me feedback uh, from track and even distributed it, they said, look, uh, with the sec, if you guys are going to do a second, it would be good to have a bit more of this strain Indigenous element to it. And I wanted to put that in there anyway. So with this one, it, it takes a long time to actually put this together because I'm actually dealing with elders and dealing with elders is a very delicate process because you, I'm not just doing this because of the sake of making a documentary film. I'm doing it because, like you, I'm, I'm very, very passionate about the subject and, and have been about all things, you know, supernatural. And I do it pure because of the passion and the love for, for the content. Yeah. But it takes a long time to to actually meet the right people and for them to actually be comfortable enough to open up to you and trust you with what you're going to do with the content. And I feel that we're getting there with this. A large portion will also cover the environmental impact that we've recently had on our national parks and on our wildlife. So there is a political element to the second one. But there's also a kind of a sit down and start to think what happened 12 months ago and where are these guys now? Where could have they migrated? So these are some of the fundamental questions we're going to be looking at. With the, with the developing of rapport and relationships with Aboriginal elders, how do you, how do you go about that? Is, is it a – because I, I, I do – I do understand that there's a lot of the law surrounding the Yowie is mm. not is not necessarily knowledge to share with outsiders or with people who aren't Aboriginal. That is correct, and the one of the things that I, I we always stipulate is, is that only share information that you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. So we I'm not out there to 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 get different nation secrets or anything else like that. Um, it's, it's more to do with how 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 the the whole, and I don't like calling it Yowie because it's the incorrect terminology. I, I like referring it to specific species, like, for example, the Dooligar, for example, um, because a Yowie means, I believe, evil spirit or something like that. So it's, it's, it actually doesn't have the correct meaning for for our Australian Bigfoot. Oh. And we do have different species in Australia. We've got about, I think, we've got about three different species. We've got the smaller ones, which likely they refer to as Junjidi. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have the larger ones, which are known as Dooligal, and, of course, the Quinkins, which are more up north around Queensland area. I'm really aware of the Junjidi and the, the Dooligal. What's the, the Quinkin? Quinkin? Yeah, they. it's believed that they're more more an aggressive species, but they are much larger than the Dooligal. Larger than the Dooligal? Much, much larger than the Dooligal. There's only been very, very very little information about 
about the the Quinkins ever. I mean, there's there's a there's a children's book there, but the first first nation people are aware of them, but they're very very rare, and there have been sightings, and I believe there has also been a sighting in the Blue Mountains as well at one point in time, but they're they're very very rare. So um, well, we, we get yeah. we get Dulagal reports up to you know eleven twelve foot high. So if you're talking a Quinkins bigger than that, how how tall are we? Uh, well, I've heard of size anywhere between 18 to 20 foot tall. Wow. So an, an actual giant from, exactly, from history, like, you know? Well, exactly. It's it's like, for example, you look at, for example, the Norse folklore referring to trolls and things like that. You look at the description of the trolls, which are very human-like, very hairy. Uh, there are cave trolls, mountain trolls, forest trolls, and, of course, you know, living under the bridge and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it is quite possible that what they're referring to is their version of, of Bigfoot over mm. there. So, And some of these creatures have been known to grow excessively tall. Um, very similar to the quick, and we're talking about more of the Nordic culture here. So it's not unusual to actually hear about um, these so-called forest giants um, in folklore, not just in Australian folklore, but but other forms of folklore throughout history. There's parallels in in other countries and other cultures. Definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's quite interesting because you start to wonder, you know, when this migration happened or are they actually Indigenous here? I mean, according to the cryptozoologists, both Gary Oppert and, and Neil Frost, they believe that we may actually have a marsupial species here, that they may actually have a pouch. So the Australian um, Bigfoot would potentially be a marsupial. I have heard that, that it mm. bends my mind a little bit. Um, it does. But it I don't know. I don't know why. We, I don't know why it should bend it even more than the, than the actual concept of of a doula girl, But <laughs> well, we had marsupial tigers here, so yeah. you know. I mean, how far? <laughs> I mean, we're dealing with a really comet that's massive. I mean, how, you know, where do you draw the line with yeah. the impossible and the incredible? You know, it's uh, anything's possible. Like anything's possible. That's very true. I was watching mm. a. Um, uh, you do, you were doing a talk I found on YouTube, and and you were explaining how possibly they could have travelled here back in time. Can you explain that to to the Yowie Central listeners? Yeah, it's look. It was something that it's it's a possibility. I mean, you, you start to wonder, you know, how did we get these these um, these folks here in Australia in the first place? Now, if they're not indigenous and how did they arrive here? And the only way, I guess, is through a land breach of some kind during the last ice age. I know there's a lot of um, people out there that support the theory that these guys potentially could be an evolved version of Gigantopithecus blackie, which was, uh, we've all heard of this guy, you know, all these species. I think they only found a, a, a molar, a jawbone, and they were prominently around Southeast Asia and in China, and they chewed on bamboo, so they were herbivores. But they were probably regarded as gentle giants. Now, if if one could, I guess it, it's more of the fact that if, if we think that, okay, if they did evolve from this creature, then why did they migrate? Uh, again, of, of course, you know, Cro-Magnon man and Homo sapien being quite dominant um, hominid back in the time. I mean, you had to be to, uh, to survive in those, those times anyway. Um, it's possible that they could have been hunting these creatures, so whether or not they then decided to migrate to other areas where, you know, back 
you know, back 20, 30,000 years ago to more isolated areas where they weren't potentially hunted. Um, who knows? I mean, uh, Gigantopithecus black, I believe, has been around up until 100,000 years ago and dates back as far as I believe anywhere between 5 to 10 million BC. So they were around for quite some time. Whether or not they were that big, um, I mean, we don't know that. I mean, we're relying obviously on scientific findings and the likes, but I guess it's just another theory out of a whole bunch of other ones that, you know, I, um, I guess I was considering when I did the talk. I said, well, here's a possibility, you know, do with it whatever you'd like. But I don't take anything for gospel because it's just a, a plausible theory that, um, you know, if, if they didn't actually come to Australia, that may have been a possibility. Yeah, I uh, cringe inside when I hear some researchers say, oh, yep, Yowies are like this. They have these abilities and they can do this. And and I, I always go, oh, but how do you – you you don't know. <laughs> you don't know for sure. None of us know for sure anything about this creature. I've heard a lot of talk about uh, interdimensional travel, whether they have that that ability, the ability to cloak themselves, the ability to use infrasound to – stun their to stun you or stun their prey or make you feel so frightened or so uneasy or so sick that you have to get out of there um mm. all of this but, but it's all conjecture really of course it is of course it is i mean the whole idea of, of these the, the dually girl being uh, a spiritual being of some kind i mean look it, it could be possible i mean if if you live in the wilderness for so long i guess i don't think that these guys and this is basically not coming up with my own theories. This is obviously over time interviewing people and, and so forth, and even people who are Indigenous to this land. You, you get an idea that the Duligal itself, and I'm only talking about the Duligal, not the Junjadi, but the Duligal itself is I, I believe that they're beyond being connected with the land. I think that they are so part of the land. I think they're, they're interconnected in such a way where they're, they're more or less one, so they're one with with our natural environment. Now, if you get to that level of of heightened consciousness, if you like, is there a possibility that these guys can you know can project themselves? Uh, can they actually bend environments to their own likings and and so forth? It's a possibility because the the First Nation people regard Duligal as guardians of the land. You know, if something happens to the Duligal, then there's an imbalance. And when there's imbalance in the land, then it affects our ecosystem and you have nothing but um, but destruction. And, uh, and they strongly believe that they, they are the guides of the land. And it makes perfect sense because I believe that they are too. I, I completely and utterly support what the First Nation people say because they have much greater knowledge of this than the European people do because – Really, when did the whole Yowie, well, Yowie, okay, Bigfoot research start in Australia? Do we have a record of that? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, it is a question. So, uh, I know. And when Dean Harrison started researching back in the 90s, but mm. before that there was uh, Rex Gilroy, I, I believe, was researching before that. Tony Healy and Paul Cropper have been researching for a long time too. But um, so, so let's, arguments like, let's over the past 50 years, you know, there's been research in Australia, past 60 years even. This is apart from documenting cases from people who, you know, who claim to have had encounters with the Yahoo and so forth, which we can read in tabloids. And I know that, that the AYR site has actually got a really good 
database there of um, reports dating back to even like the mid or early 1800s. But we're talking about a culture here that's been established in Australia for, for tens, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of years. So I when, when I hear stories and when I talk to elders about this, for me, nothing else exists apart from their words. And I listen with with a strong intent and I can see that there is knowledge there. And they're not just telling me a story for the sake of telling me a story, but there is a lot of validation there through through other nations throughout Australia that are very similar to what one particular nation would say when you compare it to another nation's elder. So there is a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of merit in the stories there and they wouldn't be talking about this if it didn't exist. Yeah. Not to mention, obviously, having you know a, a lot of anecdotal cases of people's encounters and so forth. But I do believe that we are dealing with something a little bit more complex than just a hairy beast roaming around the wilderness. You're listening to Attila Kaldi on Yowie Central on 94.9 Main FM. What's your take on we've, – we've had a few reports uh, at AYR describing a creature with a bit of a muzzle. And mm. so, what, mm. you know, dogman-ish, what they call – there is yeah. a, a – there's lot, there are lots of reports in the United States about a creature like that. Uh, we've, we've, we've got a few, not too many. What's your take on that? A canid as opposed to a hominid. Funny you should say that because we actually had an encounter with one. Not in Australia, but in Europe. If you want, I can tell you the story about it. But um, this was back, and I never thought this was possible in Australia um, up until recently. We, I, I finished shooting a, a documentary called Ghosts of Europe, and we were filming in, um, basically we started filming in Chernobyl in the Ukraine, and then we moved to Central Europe and went to Hungary, went to Slovakia and the Czech Republic, and we kind of filmed in those areas. So when we went back to Hungary, kind of wrapped it up, and um, my daughter, my son and myself went to visit my, my brother, who has passed on since, unfortunately, last year. And we visited my brother, and we are coming back about 9 o'clock at night, and this is April, which is sort of uh, early spring over there. Anyway... We're coming home and we're passing this small little village, um, dark road, nobody on it, and on one side, on the left-hand side of the road, there was like a, uh, a field of, of something green, could have been wheat, could have been sunflower, whatever, um, and on the other side, there was a much larger area there of wheat and whatnot, and then that sort of blended into the mountain range. But on the left-hand side, there was a row of trees, and those trees created a sporadic green belt that led into a national park over there, which wasn't far away. Now, this national park kind of stretches along the Danube, and it's it's quite a dense national park, but at night time, oh, boy, does that get eerie. It really does. And we were driving back, and I was doing about – we just passed the village, so there's no streetlights, obviously, because this is like a country road, and there's no other car on the road. So I've had a, I was driving an old Passat there, station wagon, so the lights were – very amber and very dim, so, you know, I could just barely see in front of me. So we're driving along. I'm doing probably about six or 70 kilometres an hour, and all of a sudden I see this red light running parallel with the car. And I'm thinking to myself, bloody hell, if that's a guy on a trail bike, because there's no roads on our 
left-hand side. I mean, you've got, like I said, there's like a, a field of, uh, of, of green wheat and then you've got this stretch of trees and beyond that you've got some more fields and then about probably about five kilometres further away there was, a, there was a little village there, a little settlement. And this thing was probably about, probably about 20, 30 metres running parallel in between like the wheat. I think there's probably some guy on a bloody trail bike. You know, I could just see the red light. It's probably like a torch or something like that on his head. And this thing just takes off and then it crosses the road. But whatever crossed the road, had it had mass to it. It was big. So my daughter actually saw that and, and I caught a glimpse of it too. So we went past and I thought, stuff this. I'm going to stop and see what the hell this is. So I stopped in the road. Well, there was no cars coming. Like I said, it was about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Put it into reverse, so obviously the back of the road was lit up with my with my uh, tail light and the reverse light. So I'm going back. My son's sitting in the back seat. He's sort of looking, and there was this one tree on the side of the road. And then all of a sudden, he did a double take, looks stairs, and starts pounding my seat, saying, "Dad, get the hell out of here now! Go, we gotta go, gotta go." I didn't hesitate, so I floored it, got out of there. Uh, this poor kid was hyperventilating all the way until we got to the hotel where he then explained that what he actually saw was this massive creature. Its head was larger than, it was out of proportion of its body. It was so large, but it was a canine-like head with his body hugging this tree. And the tree was actually obviously leaning a little bit because of the weight of this thing. And it took up about half of the tree. Now, this tree would have been about five, six metres tall. And the head was out of proportionately large, but it didn't have any fur on it. It had like patchy skin and it scared the hell out of him. It, it looked like a dire wolf with a massive head, basically. That's the way he described it, but without any fur. Um, it had sort of like patchy, it could have had patchy fur and it looked very sickly the way he said it. That kind of underlined the fact that Europe has had a long history of, of you know, so-called werewolves or dogmen and things like that. I'm, ultimately, I don't believe. I personally can't imagine how a human, you know, turns into a three-metre-tall wolf-like creature and starts prowling the night, apart from, you know, skinwalkers and things like that. But I don't have enough knowledge about that to sort of comment. But, <laughs> but recently I was shown a photo of, of something very similar, but it had a head of a dog not far from where I live in the National Park, in the in the uh, Dural National Park. And when I looked at it, I thought, my God, that's that looks like, yeah, it looks like one of those things <laughs> that, that we all hate calling them, but we call them, they are dogmen, you know. And I never thought in a million years uh, in Australia, I mean, how is it possible we don't have, we have dingoes, yeah, okay, but we, we don't have indigenous wolves here, but we did have megafauna. And we kind of still do if we look at the fact if the Duligal and the Quinkins uh, exist, which I do believe that they do, they are part of the whole sort of megafauna genus. So if that's true, then then we're in a lot of trouble if these guys actually exist because they I know that they're regarded as extremely violent and hostile creatures. Yeah. So I don't know what to make of that. But, again, Sarah, anything's possible. Where do we draw the line of the incredible when we are dealing with such things? Exactly. I guess having – read a lot of Jeff Meldrum's stuff. He's the primatologist and anatomist from Idaho State University. He He's convinced about the existence of Bigfoot because of all the tracks, the, 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 mm. the evidence, the trace evidence, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. if we're finding actual tracks of 
potentially, <laughs> allegedly, Dogman tracks, uh, then that that sort of takes my takes my brain to a whole nother level of implosion, really. <laughs> oh, look, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've been to places where we've had multiple encounters of different things. Uh, it's almost basically, we can call it almost like the Australian version of the, of the Skinwalker Ranch. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if whatever is going on in America, the Skinwalker Ranch is very similar to here. I mean, how are they making their way to this country? I mean, again, I mean, I know we start to speculate, you know, where do they come from and how do they evolve and everything else. We might be asking the wrong questions here, Sarah. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be looking for better questions to start even entertaining answers that may be steering in the right direction. That's it. That's a very good point. Very good point. So are you, are you referring to uh, somewhere in the Blue Mountains area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by multiple different paranormal encounters, you mean orbs, that, UFOs, Black Panthers, Dooligals? Um, well, yeah, um, there's a combination. We've had there were UFO encounters there. There was even a photo taken of a UFO there, um, a cylindrical shaped object in the sky. Um, there was, uh, there'd been, uh, dually going encounters. There were encounters with creatures that just would blow your mind that would otherwise you'd see in horror movies. And, and I'm talking about not, um, I did have some personal encounters there with other strange things, but when you have one person who says something, you start to think, well, maybe the imagination's running wild. But then when you have two or three people claiming that they've seen the same thing, that's when you start taking this shit seriously, excuse the French, but that's when you yeah. start taking you know, these stories seriously because all of a sudden you have multiple witnesses to, yeah. to an event. So if, if you look at this situation like a court case uh, and a lot of the investigators out there would, I guess, would be, would be working on the lines very similar to that of, you know, of crime, scene, crime scene investigation, the way our you know, law enforcement uh, officers and, and people do you would understand that when you start having multiple witnesses in a jury, all of a sudden the statements are gaining tremendous weight. So we're dealing with something here that is not a fabrication of the human mind, but rather something that has been witnessed by multiple witnesses So, or, or multiple eyewitness accounts. So, And, they, and they, they're basically describing the same thing. So we're talking about some really out there stuff, you know, like I said, stuff that you would only think would exist in horror movies. You know, being in this field for around 20 years, like I said to you, you know, geez, what's impossible, you know, really? I mean, (laughs) there's so many things that one would regard, well, that can't exist, this can't exist, or that can't exist. Just because we haven't seen it doesn't necessarily mean that we haven't discovered those things yet. Um, we don't know how they appear and, and what methodology that they use. We don't know what kind of creatures we're dealing with. Are they biological? Are they something else? We don't know that. There are so, like I said, there are so many questions out there, but I do believe that we're asking the wrong questions. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely, the idea when you well, when you have multiple witnesses of the same thing that always mm. gets me excited when when we get a case in that there are multiple witnesses. I interviewed a couple of days ago a couple from the Bundalong area, which is the Ovens River in Victoria. 
So the, the, the woman was a, is a retired police officer and it was both her and her husband saw a doula girl. And so when you've got someone who's a retired police officer, that mm. lends credence, but also her husband saw the same thing. So mm. it, you, you have to then say, clearly it's not mass hysteria. They're pretty level headed people. Uh, they weren't drinking. They weren't smoking pot or doing anything like that. And they're genuinely terrified. You can hear it in their voice still. Mm. So, yeah, what 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 are the what is it? What are they seeing out there? Well, yeah, I mean, like you said, you've, you've had a trained observer there being a police officer. I mean, these guys are trained to identify things, and it's just it's almost like having a you know a military a retired military officer or or, or a uh, military military personnel or an air force officer or an air force personnel pilot these people are trained observers you know we're, we're not just dealing with everyday people we're dealing with people who are trained to be able to identify certain things and be able to report that in detail back to other authorities so yeah, it, it does add additional uh, credence to to, uh, to to these sighting reports for sure. Absolutely. So when's um, when's track two, the tracking the law? When's that coming mm-hmm. out? Well, that's a good question because <laughs> this could be a long project. I'm I'm kind of going to take my time with this one, Sarah, because I feel that to to brew something good, you you need to take your time and. It, it, it takes a long time to be able to get to certain places or to get to certain interviews or to obtain, you know, the trust of, of, of elders, for example, or other people who, who are going to be participating in this. And it's a long shot too because if something doesn't work out, then you've got to, you know, do some more research and see if you can find, you know, plan B or a substitute person to to provide you with that information. And also covid Hasn't helped a lot because we <laughs> no. started we started filming this before COVID actually kicked off in Australia. So we've been around February last year. So it's already already been twelve months since I've been filming this. But I look, I I probably got another twelve months, if not eighteen months, to go before I finish this. So it could be a, a long process this one before I have the right staff for me to be happy with. Do you go in with a with a script? Have you how you've planned out the the, the the film do you go mm. in with a, with a clear idea of where you're going with it or does it happen organically once you start interviewing people and gathering information Look, you can plan as much as you want but when you do a documentary there always a curveball I, I actually have a production plan uh, in quite in, in detail but that production plan changes on a regular basis because you, you may have for example you would interview somebody and then they give you some information think wow, that is really good stuff. I might take that direction instead. So then you find that you're going to end up juggling or changing your whole production plan and all of a sudden the path that you're taking is starting to deviate so in a different direction. But it's just a natural evolution. Um, I don't like being, you know, extremely strict and, and, and you know, adamant about, you know, well, this is my production plan. I've got to follow it from A to Z. You've got to, as you said, and as you mentioned, you've got to allow for it to develop organically and and to put that flexibility in there, I think, is very, very important. So, But, yes, I do have a production plan. I've got everything all planned out from dates, uh, interviews, uh, calendars, budget plan, <laughs> which is a joke. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's a scrap. All right, well, I've got to do this. I've got to, oh, okay, I've got about probably six months before I can do that. But look, yeah, it's stuff like that. Uh, people of interest that I need to contact and then obviously substitute to those people if they don't work out. So, yeah, it's, it's quite detailed. It's quite detailed. Now, I discovered when I was doing a little bit of research on you that you, you, your wife is a medium and a psychic profiler. Does she still do that with you? Yes, um, she does, but <laughs> she, she does it behind closed doors. Uh-huh. So she, she does have, uh, yeah, she does do that still. She does practice it, but, um, she's not sort of, are very, she's not public about it, put it this way. We didn't want to say this, but I said to look, it's probably a, a good opportunity now to talk about it is that we're actually writing a book. We have started writing it 12 months ago. It's it's basically, um, it's it's a book about our lives, basically. So it, um, I don't know if you could call it a memoir. It's kind of a memoir, I guess, but it, it has a lot of stuff in there that we haven't spoken about in public that we decided to put into a book. Um, and these things range from from my earliest encounter with the paranormal to how I got into filming and stuff that I've done uh, during the filming process and some of the experiences that we've had in a way of, you know, of uh, more um, parapsychological and paraphysical stuff. We haven't put everything in there, but we have put a lot of stuff into this, so hopefully we'll have that done in the next few months. Also, I am going to be putting a lot of stuff in there about my own sort of personal experiences with with Dooley Gale and, and the likes and, and and some of the things that I've been made aware of, which – and I do admit that that whole migration thing that I did at the Australian Institute of Parapsychology, that whole migration and all that kind of stuff, yes, I've heard of that before, but obviously I did put some of my own theories into that, but it was only a theory based on, you know, based on the information that we have but a lot of the things that most of the things, in fact, everything that I put in there is is based on secondhand information that I've gathered gathered from from First Nation people, anecdotal cases over the years as well that seem to make a lot of sense. It's it's almost like when you're when you've got a jigsaw puzzle and you've got the right pieces, you start forming a picture. And I guess in in, in a lot of instances, you know, for me, that's how this whole process works. Because if you have one or two Cases where people claim something that's really, really weird, you think, well, that's strange and I can't see that actually. But look, I'll put it down anyway. But when you start having multiple people over the years sort of bringing up very similar stories, that's when you start thinking, well, holy shit, we're dealing with something. There's, there's a pattern here. So now we've all of a sudden we get to learn a little bit more about this culture um, and a little bit more than what I did know two years ago or three years ago. So these are some of the things I've actually put together and inside in this book. So, yeah. Oh, that sounds excellent. I'll, I'll look forward mm. to reading it. Yeah, thanks. Definitely. And speaking of an- anomalies, um, Dean Harrison, he keeps a note of some of the stranger things, the more un- the unusual things that are reported to us. And we've had mm. several of sideways blinking eyes and mm. diamond-shaped eyes. And self-illuminating eyes, which which is mm. fascinating as well. But the sideways blinking, at first you you think, oh god, that's how could that be true? But we've we've had more than one person report it now, so you start to think, is there something in that? Absolutely. I mean, we could be probably dealing with different forms of subspecies as well. So yeah, yeah, a different form of evolution. We don't know how they evolve. You know, I mean, we know so little about them. It's not funny. So. Look, uh, anything's possible, Sarah. Like, like I said, you know that 
thing that was that was basically you know paralleling the car when I was over in Europe uh, had this red illumination about it. Now I'm sure it wasn't wearing a head torch, um, but something was obviously iridescent. It was self illuminated, mm. so it most likely would have been the eyes. Um, so I, I don't think that's that's. I don't think that's far-fetched at all. I think that anything's possible, Sarah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's so true. I'm, 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 I'm in that camp so now times. too. What, what was that, mate? <laughs> I know I've thought of this so many times, but, it's, <laughs> you know, when, when you're stuck in a, a certain belief system, I have been, I've, I've, I've had this sort of, you know, it's almost like having a religion, you know, that you can't deviate from your belief. But and when you get exposed to other elements and you start thinking, my God, you know, is this actually real? And then you look more into it and you discover that, hang on a second, there are multiple people actually seeing the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't draw the line anymore, to be honest, because <laughs> I don't think there is a line to be drawn. No, that's very sensible. <laughs> well, Attila, I, I, thank you so much for for talking to me and, and to the Yowie Central audience. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. No, oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Attila Kaldi, independent filmmaker, investigative video journalist, director, producer, cinematographer and creator of the documentary Track, Search for Australia's Bigfoot. If you've had an encounter with a Yowie or you've seen a ghost or you've had a scary UFO experience or any other weird stuff, get in touch with me via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. And that's all we've got time for this week, my friends. Yowie Central will be back next week, same time, same place, on 94.9 Main FM. If you're going out Yowie researching... Don't go by yourself and stay safe. Tell someone where you're going. Catch you next week. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. of your diamond ring your fancy jacket won't be worth a dime when you're sucking the blood right out of your spine hear him cry hear him howl looking for someone to disembark
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.